You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Hey everyone, this is Andrew Weinhardt of 8-Bit Test Plan. And as you can hear in the background, we're raiding today. While Tara Tanks and Megan heals, I'm sitting back here being pretty ineffective with the DPS. So I might as well take this opportunity to share an interview I did with Professor Rachel Glims of Indiana University. We talked about arcade cabinets, preservation of physical game media, gaming nostalgia, and more. I'll check back in later with y'all with an update on our progress in the radar space. Wish us luck! This is Andrew Reinhard for the 8-Bit Test Bit podcast, and we're doing something new today. Uh, we actually have a guest, which is the first time in, I guess, about seven or eight episodes that we've had someone who is not Megan, Tara, and myself um, talking about video game archaeology and video game history, and his name is Professor Dr. Rayford Gwins, and he is currently at Indiana University as a professor of cinema and media studies. Um, Some of you might be familiar with Rayford's work, uh, specifically the 2014 book from MIT Press, Game After, A Cultural Study of Video Game Afterlife. And then in 2016, um, he co-edited a volume called Debugging Game History, A Critical Lexicon, and is currently hard at work at a new book, Atari Modern, A Design History of Atari's Coin-Op Cabinets, 1972 to 1979. And uh, I know Rayford personally from working with him at the Atari Burial Ground excavation back in 2014 uh, in Alamogordo, New Mexico. So it's great to reconnect, Rayford, and welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to be the, the first guest on the show, so I'm really excited to be here. No, thanks Thanks for making the time. So so with with your work, um, I'm, I'm most familiar with, with what you're doing with the study of art arcade cabinets, you know, for, for the listeners who are as old as we are, uh, we kind of grew up with these things, basically stand-up boxes, or if you went to the bars, you could actually put your drinks on these things. Um, and I was wondering, you know, what lessons you know, you've learned or what your research has kind of uncovered when you're talking about, you know, the materials and the materiality of early video game systems, specifically the ones that we used to play, you know, at these, uh, you know, coin-op arcades. Okay. I think that there was a takeaway for me with Game After. Um, there was a question I posited that I couldn't answer at the time. So I'm standing in a lot of different museums, and I'm constantly seeing coin-op cabinets, you know, the large, upright um, uh, coin-operated machines, in glass display cases. And then I would see a small title card that would have the name, Space Invaders, for example, the year, the company, the distributor, and that's about it. But you know, here's a game designed to be interacted with, designed to be played, but in the museum, I can't necessarily know it as a game. So the question for me was, what am I looking at? What am I actually seeing when I'm cut off from direct physical interaction from these games? Now, I couldn't, as I said, I couldn't really give an answer then, but I think what I'm, the answer I'm building to now is that I'm looking at a history of industrial, graphic, and mechanical design. And it's a history that does not exist in the history of games, nor is it a history that exists in the history of design. And that's what's really fascinating me, is I feel like I've identified an artifact that is at the interstices between game history and the history of design. 
but yet it doesn't exist in any of the spaces. Uh, and what I mean by that is nobody's written these histories. Nobody's really tried to think about a game as built from various different design practices and processes. And I think the reason for that is in the history of games and game studies, we tend to privilege what's on the screen. We're very interested in gameplay, and we're interested in thinking about the history of games tied primarily through hardware development and software development. And what I've discovered, I think, in the research is that, well, those are only two design practices that are responsible or formative of this thing we call the coin-operated video game machine. So that's what's got me to this project, um, is that there was a question that was left unanswered, and I've been doing extensive research at uh, Stanford University's archives. They have the Steve Bristow collection. He was VP of Atari's coin-op division, and also at the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. They have a massive collection uh, from Atari's industrial design. So I've found materials that have allowed me to ask more informed questions of coin-op game history. Um, and I also have, you know, this, uh, at my access artifacts, so I can actually look at these games at different museums. If the curators are willing, under controlled conditions, they can disassemble the games so I can look inside of them. And this really helps me to try to materialize a, a history of design that I feel, you know, really expands how we can think about these particular artifacts and the cultural context in which they were developed. You know, this is this is just fascinating stuff, and it really kind of resonates with with the reading that I've been doing recently by uh, Tim Engold. Um, so you're talking about materials, you're talking about materiality, and and you're also talking about design and materials intersecting to make a thing, which then takes on a life of its own um, or doesn't, you know, depending on on whether or not it's being interacted with. And I'm wondering, you know, as, as you're taking a look at the design, and, and I'm, I'm guessing that there are some designers who are still alive who you can talk to, um, how, much, how much of this, um, you know, work is taking a look at the actual materials that put together a cabinet? I mean, you know, what, what's a cabinet made of? And, and, you know, why were those materials chosen in order to present, you know, a game in a certain way? Mm -hmm. Um, I'll start by answering, I'll have, a, I'll have a long answer here, okay? So if I start to wander off, drag me back in. I think part of it has to do with the organizational structure of Atari. So I'm looking at a chart, and I know you can't see this, but this is a chart that Peter uh, Takeichi, he was head of industrial design at Atari. He was hired in 1973 when he just finished his degree at San Jose State University in industrial design. Um, so this chart shows the divisional makeup of Atari's coin-op division. So we have electrical engineering. Underneath that, as you would expect, is software engineering, programmers, technicians, assemblers, electronic design. That's what often gets written into the history of games. Again, as I said, software and hardware development. If you kind of move across on this chart, then you see pinball design. You know, Atari did have a pinball design division. I believe they did four or five pinball machines. Then you see industrial design. Underneath that, you have concept design, product design, the model shop. Then we have graphic design, so another division responsible for all the artwork we see on the side cabinets, the attraction panel, the control panel, plus all the sell sheets that were used to promote these games um, to different you know, business venues, operators, arcade owners. We then have mechanical engineering and engineering services. Engineering services is interesting because they were responsible for writing the uh, manuals that were shipped in these games. They also did harness design. That's sort of the electronic artery that wires together the entire machine, and documentation control. 
Uh, mechanical engineering is responsible for all the controls. You know, these are the input devices that allow us to actually play the game. So centipede, perhaps, for instance, the rollerball, night drive, or night rider, or night driver, night driver, the uh, mimetic steering wheel. Okay, so that's one of the important things to begin my response to is that Atari understood the coin-out machine as a complex design process. Yes, of course, the idea of the game itself is what drove design, but the game itself by itself could not actually go out into the market. It needed designers to package this game so it could be played safely uh, in different places of consumption. Now, in terms of the materials, you asked me a question about materials, and you also asked me who's responsible for it. Um, particle board on the sides. Particle board was used. It's, it's, it's durable. It's also lightweight. The coin slot box in the front was backed by solid plywood. I suspect you would realize why plywood would be used in the front guarding the coin doors so people can't kick them in to rob people. <laughs> um, you also had, in the 1970s in particular, and that's why this period fascinates me so much, keep in mind the monitors were black and white. Full color, to mo full color monitors really didn't start to emerge until the late, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. So the, card, the bezels surrounding the monitor were often die-cut cardboard uh, with different types of graphics illustration on them to add a sense of color surrounding that screen. So that's exactly why you would see the attraction panel, often done in original type and this brilliant color palette. A bezel would often have artwork on the bezel itself to try to drag the viewer in to give the impression that this is a very vibrant, rich, brilliant game, when in fact, it's a black and white monitor. So color really tried to, to assist the experience of gameplay. It also had a role of trying to market, to promote these games to would-be owners, you know, people who would buy these games, put them on a route, or put them on a specific location, and also the player. You know, the attraction panel, I was told by uh, Robert Clemente, who was part of the graphic design division, its job was to attract a potential user in three seconds. I guess Atari did these, these sort of uh, studies. They found that that's how much time a person will spend looking up at a game before they decide to drop a quarter in or not. So we have a lot of durable products that were used, a, a, a lot of durable materials that were used for these machines. And keep in mind, the machine is not just there to enable or for gameplay. It has to, it has to protect and support all the electronic components inside. Now, this is something I think we often overlook because we're so interested in playing these things, right? It's that the, the, the wood has to be able to hold electronics components. That's not just the PC board or the monitor. It's also the power supply and all the mechanical devices inside you know, that support the coin door, but also the controls. So it has to protect them in terms of shipment. So when these games are shipped to distributors, the actual cabinet provides its own type of packaging you know, to make sure these, the internal sides are safe, but also the wear and tear in the field. One thing that I found that was quite interesting is that when Atari started to experiment with different types of laminates, um, they would actually be able to expand the actual control panel to kind of wrap it down, complete with artwork, because these new laminates allow them to be more creative in terms of how they could actually package these games for potential players. So that's, that's one of my responses to thinking about the materiality in terms of the different materials that are actually used within these games. I'm surprised, you know, Andrew, what, one thing that really kind of opened my eyes to a lot of this research was just how innovative Atari had to be 
in terms of some of the technical constraints uh, influencing their games in the 1970s. For example, uh, Warlords. The Warlords was a very, very popular game in the form of the, co the cocktail table or the upright cabinet. It's a game I often remember as you know being very colorful when I would play the game. Um, one of the things I found that was really intriguing is that it's not a color monitor. It's a black and white monitor. Well, then how does it give color? How does it present color? Well, it's an illusion. It's a very old sort of trick that a lot of electromechanical games would utilize. And this is before video games were uh, being used in upright cabinets. They basically put multicolored cellophane, a cellophane film, directly on top of the monitor held together by tape. <laughs> so when I've seen Warlords disassembled, I see this very thick kind of piece of plastic coating directly over the monitor. So you have the phosphorus glow of a cathode ray tube projecting through this multi-paneled color uh, uh, plastic piece. That's how we have the illusion of color. And of course, around all of that is this really nice illustrated or graphic design bezel. So when all put together, the cabinet, in my mind, is the game. You know, it's not just, it's a machine, it's a device or an apparatus that we play through, but you can take that monitor out of the cabinet, and you can put it on a desk, and you can play the monitor connected to a printed circuit board with some input, input device. But is that the same experience of standing up, having your body kind of work with the overall apparatus? You can still play the game, but is the game only that which appears on the screen, or is it the entire machine? And I think this is what's really important for me, is to use the word machine. Because I think the actual game is one component in a much larger machine. And by using machine, I think it forces us to think about all of those uh, component parts that feed into the overall game that we play. In terms of the people responsible, this is what's been a real driving, um, I guess a driving thread for my work is that there's been a good deal of documenting the actual software developers. You know, their names often accompanied games, for instance. So it's not uncommon to see you know, an asteroid, an Ed Log's name is connected directly to that game. And it gives the impression that there was one person responsible for something we call asteroids, when in fact there was an entire design team behind it. So Tempest is another one where I've reached out and I've interviewed, I found the actual industrial designer responsible for the cabinet of that game. His name is Mike Carrillo. I've interviewed him for about six hours uh, at his house. <laughs> and it was amazing to hear somebody talk about how vital his role is in shaping the gameplay experience. So the thought that went into why the cabinet looks the way it does, it's not accidental, it's not arbitrary, it's not only driven by marketing. But it involves a concept design that an industrial designer started to sketch with magic markers and colored pencils to get some type of semblance of what his vision would be. He would play the game. He would look at the game. He would draw certain attributes of the game and try to have his cabinet express or embody those attributes uh, in the experience of gameplay. So there's a base, so there's a counter history of design. If that's the correct word, counter history, maybe not, or maybe anonymous history is a term I prefer. There's an anonymous history of design practices, fields, and processes that doesn't get covered when we overdetermine our understanding of the game to that which is on the screen. Uh, no, I think you're really onto something there, um, and, and I'm thinking specifically of, of the treatment of video games as you see them in museum collections, for example. So you go to you go to MoMA and you take a look at the video game exhibit, and you 
are basically looking at what's on the screen and is this art, et cetera. You know, you kind of have that argument. And then you go to a place like the National Museum of Play or the Strong or uh, the, the Vagamos Video Game Museum in Rome, and here are these things that are largely out in the open that are totally playable you know, with your own quarters. They still work. Um, and so you're getting that, that original gameplay experience as presented through the packaging, through the construction, as well as you know, what's actually happening, happening in front of you. Um, and, you know, that kind of gets, gets one, I, I have two, two questions actually that are going to stem from this. Um, one is, you know, how is, how is preservation handled for these cabinets? How, do, how are they taken care of, uh, and kind of restored, you know, to their you know, original glory or is, is restoration something that, that, you know, should be avoided and they should just be conserved in their original state. And then the other, the other question is one of nostalgia. Um, and how do we kind of separate, you know, the nostalgia of this kind of retro gaming environment that we seem to be occupying right now with an actual you know, historical or archaeological take or interpretation of the games themselves. Okay, uh, let me, I'll jump into both of these. I'll say one word about MoMA quickly. Uh, I'll send you a piece I've written on MoMA's game exhibition from Journal Design and Culture. And I, I agree with you, you basically have 90 degree LCD screens or plasma screens cut into the wall. It's very rare that we played games on a 90-degree angle in terms of the screen. And the reason for that is often uh, screens are at a 45 or maybe a 20 or actually flat uh, to deal with glare. So you have the overhang of the cabinet to actually protect uh, the glare so that a player, you know, the player is inside the cabinet's body when they play, right? So MoMA undoes the actual mode of delivery within which we've experienced these games. And one thing that I think MoMA really fails at is that the uh, curator of the Interaction Design Exhibition made a point of not including consoles or any cabinets because she referred to those as peripheries, I believe, and nostalgia. So she thought that that might undo the kind of minimalist, modern aesthetic that MoMA really prides itself on. In doing so, that very physical medium for interaction is removed. The cabinet is part of interaction design. Those uh, um, Input devices that were provided by a mechanical engineer, they were aerodynamically designed. They were designed so the body could work and play with them in a very comfortable and exciting way to make something happen on the screen. So I don't quite understand how MoMA understands interaction design. because It seems as if it's completely stripped away the physical encounter of interacting. And in place of that, we can only understand interaction design based upon what appears on the screen. And here's a case in point with MoMA. I think this might tie into preservation nostalgia very well. I don't know if you played this when you were there, uh, Andrew, but you can play Space Invaders at MoMA. Space Invaders was a black and white monitor. Of course, we remember it in color because, again, there was that thick cellophane plastic put directly over the monitor to give the image of color. But MoMA is just completely in color. So it's simulation, but it's simulation that's been changed. Now that raises huge questions because you would never be able to play that type of Space Invaders on a color screen in 1978 when it came out. So what is this I'm actually looking at? Well, what it is, it's MoMA's version of Space Invaders that's masquerading itself for the 1978 version of Space Invaders. So in a sense, MoMA actually changed the artifact, but hasn't actually said that it's changed the artifact. It still utilizes the date of 1978, which gives the impression that this is how the game looked in 1978, which is completely uh, false. So there, a change was made. MoMA seems more interested in telling its story of interaction design than actually recognizing the constraints of game history. 
I think MoMA is unusual in that respect because what I've seen in a lot of other museums is that they're very concerned about what type of changes they make. Uh, here's a good example that Strong has shared with me. In their, um, in their recreated arcade, they have a Pac-Man machine. I think, I'm pretty sure it's Pac-Man that you can play while you're there. So it's fantastic. You, know, you can actually interact with the cabinet. You can stand and play the game. Most young people, I would say, have only played this by way of emulators or by way of some anniversary Pac-Man or emulation one can download from Xbox Live, for instance. But to physically stand has an entire different dynamic about it. If you play that game, you and I would notice something. The screen looks too clear. It looks too crisp. It's not a cathode ray tube, so it's not raster. It's a plasma screen that's been turned, I believe, horizontally to kind of capture the actual gameplay space of Pac-Man. Now, from a person visiting the game's perspective, they're happy to be playing Pac-Man. They're not thinking so much about this, the technological attributes of this game. From a game preservationist point of view, the Strong has actually changed the integrity of the game by substituting a different display device. Now, I could say, well, I could fault the Strong for that, but the Strong is a public museum, and the Strong wants to make sure that its visitors can have an experience with these artifacts. So it just raises so many questions. On one hand, I applaud the fact they're putting these games out into a space where visitors can interact with them, they can understand them, they can play with them, they can touch them, which breaks a lot of rules in traditional museums. But at the same time, to do that, it means they've actually had to alter the original artifact. I think one of the things that we find really important with preservation is that we can't cling to the idea of the original. We have to understand games is taking multiple versions over their life period, and that that's a different experience of a person playing Pac-Man by way of a plasma or LCD screen than a person playing an old, beat-up Pac-Man machine Catholic YouTube with Greyhound bus station. I'm not going to say one's better or one's less. I'm going to say they're different. And I think this is the most positive way to think about how we can maintain these artifacts, we have to really move away from these notions of the original and the copy to be very accepting of multiple versions. So I think it's collect they tell a collective story in my mind. Let's face it, the quality of archaeological field photography could really use some improvement. We aim to change this with the Codify Magic Photo Board. This lightweight but incredibly durable board is designed to help you take color-perfect photos of artifacts, features, and sites using almost any camera, even your smartphone. You need to see it to believe it. Engineered from exceptional quality, color-safe, high-pressure laminate, Codify Magic Photo Board is ready for tough field conditions. It's guaranteed to level up your photography. Start taking publication-worthy photos right in the field with the Codify Magic Photo Board. Available now for pre-order, visit codify.com slash APN. That's codifi.com forward slash APN today and get your promo code exclusively for listeners of the Archaeology Podcast Network. <laughs> I think that you're absolutely right. And I've been thinking about this a lot with, um, you know, the console software that I've been playing. Uh, and, you know, you, you deal with, with build numbers, you deal with versioning, and it's the same game, but it does change over time, even though the message that's being conveyed is the same message or a very similar message, you know, than what was, uh, you know, intended by the the creators, you know, of that particular thing. And I consider this to be stratigraphy um, in, an in a very archaeological sense where you might be dealing with a particular site, you know, say Troy, but then you have all of these different levels. It's still Troy, but Troy changes over time. It still has the essence and the message of, of Troy as the city, 
but uh, you're building on top of that. You're making changes and modifications to it. You're preserving it. You're studying it. And uh, you're using, I think, exactly the same kinds of methods of interpretation that you use in dirt archaeology as you would you know, when you're you know, taking a look at how the Strong is, is uh, presenting Pac-Man to the public. I think, I think what I like about that is that you put Troy in plural, that there are many Troys. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And I think Pac-Man, I treat the same way. There are many Pac-Men. And I think that, you know, to do game history, we have to be very aware of all the various versions of Pac-Man and try to make sense of them. You know, Pac-Man's not just that game from 1980. Um, there are multiple different versions. Some good, some have a certain fidelity to the original, some don't. Some are complete clones and ripoffs, like Odyssey 2's Casey Munchkin, for instance, or this new air hockey um, game called Pac-Man that I've been loathing recently, whenever <laughs> I see it in public. But I think that's fascinating. We actually have a giant family resemblance of this game, and I think we have to try to make sense of all of that. In terms of the hands-on sort of preservation techniques I've seen, I think the Strong, the Strong does it very well. They have a full-time game technician. So if one, or you hire on staff for full-time, so if one of their games goes down in the recreated arcade, they can pull it, replace it with another game, and then this person can actually do repairs. Now, of course, where does one go to school for television engineering uh, today? I, I don't think you do. So I think that this is kind of a finite model. Unless those skills are being transferred to a younger generation, like an apprentice network at a museum, I don't know how long the sustainability working with that model, if somebody has that knowledge base, will last. I do think that as, as time moves on, if you imagine that video games are still of interest to cultural institutions in 50 years, I think it's pretty fair to say that we're going to see a lot of static point-op machines uh, behind glass where we can't play them, but we'll have really good emulation, maybe right next to it. So you can, you can play the emulation, get an experience of gameplay while you're looking at the actual point-op, you know, the, the, I guess the sarcophagus next to it, right, standing there. Yeah. I think that's why design history becomes really important because I want, I want that cabinet to be able to reveal more than just the name the year and the company. I want the industrial designer, the mechanical engineer, the graphic designer to get the same amount of credit that the software designer has, uh, has been given historically. No, I, um, I agree with you there too. Uh, getting back to something that you said earlier about you know these emulators and whatnot. I mean, there's there's certainly if you go online, you can go to different abandonware sites and you can download ROMs you know to be played in MAME, for example, um, on your PC or whatever. And those are fun and those do communicate somewhat of a gameplay experience. At least you can see what it looks like, you know, separated from everything else, which is pretty cool. Um, the the other thing um, is is that you have kind of communities of practice or hobbyists, um, you know, who are who are you know kind of knowledgeable or skilled in the old ways of computer technology. I, I remember visiting uh, uh, in another life. I had clients at the Computer History Museum, and so you know, if ever they had a question or kind of a, a WTF moment, they would be able to reach out to people in Silicon Valley or these old school dudes from IBM or HP or whatever, and they could come in and explain what's going on and, and sometimes actually fix these things, you know, as a matter of conservation. So, you know, maybe we'll see this as like, um, you know, car enthusiasts having a hobby club, you know, around Triumph automobiles, you know, it's just people who love the stuff so much that they learned or are self-taught and they kind of share their knowledge. And that's what we might be seeing, you know, with these, uh, these coin op games, you know, 50 years ahead. As you'll have I these. I've seen it now because that's hmm. exactly the metaphor. When I interviewed Van Burnham, who, and uh, Seamus Blakely, who have the Supercade collection, 
in Pasadena, California, that's exactly the metaphor that she used. And we're very much like car enthusiasts. Instead of hot rodding a Mustang, we're hot rodding Tempest or something like that. <laughs> and you know, those those communities are very distributed. Um, on Facebook, I, I'm I'm kind of a lurker on a coin op collective, and they're constantly posting you know images of the games they've just uh, salvaged that they can do conservation, some restoration to. You know, for them, they're very concerned about original parts. You know. Do you undermine the originality of the game if you change screws or if you swap out boards or screens? And those are issues I think that a hobbyist concerns itself with. I think museums have to be a little more mindful of the public because a private collector is collecting for themselves and collecting for their social community. They don't have to think about a thousand people coming through the doors at Strong on a daily basis, for instance, right, that want to see stuff. So private collectors have a different um, investment when it comes to artifacts. And because they have these vast collecting networks, you know, they can they can trade parts to make sure they can restore, I don't know, a Quix to its cherry form and, and that kind of mentality of thinking around these types of games. But again, you know, what I've seen with Gene Lewin, who runs Vintage Arcade Superstore, this wonderful warehouse in Glendale, California, uh, he's got stacks and stacks of printed circuit boards, and he's got this dank, dirty, dusty area with just cathode ray tubes stacked in there. But eventually, our stockpiles will run low. So perhaps for the moment, stockpiling works. But again, 50, 100, 200 years from now, um, I, I don't think we can really think about and rely upon original parts in the same way. So that, that does raise a certain uh, limitation to these kind of private collecting networks. And I think cultural institutions can really sustain the life of games over a longer period of time, because that's what museums do. They don't just take objects in for 10 years or 15 years, but they're thinking 100, 200, 300 years into the future. Um, your question of nostalgia, you know, this one I will confess, you know, you've read Game After, and I'm, I'm pretty nasty about nostalgia in Game After. I say, let's just forget it. And there's a reason I say that, and I'm not anti-nostalgia. I'm anti the influence nostalgia has had in the game histories that have been written. That's what really troubles me, is that we've yet to produce very, very well-researched kind of uh, methodologically-minded histories of games, and we've relied heavily upon kind of linear histories, chronicles, descriptive accounts, and a lot of histories that seem to be populated just by one having played games in arcades when they were kids in the 1980s, right? So I'm distrustful of nostalgia as the only method for doing game history. That's sort of my gripe when it comes to nostalgia, is that it has been it when it comes to the history of games. I really want to see nostalgia as one approach among many others. And that's what I think having uh, a game histories book series MIT, writing a book like Game After, and even this design history that I'm doing, it's trying to really distribute the different ways we can think about uh, the past in video games. So it's not only nostalgia that kind of has the, uh, I guess it envelopes the entire way that we think of the past. So I really want to open up to more critical research. I think nostalgia does have a, has a role to play. I think certainly personal memoir, uh, autobiography, very valuable in trying to tell these histories. But from a person who's active in the field of nostalgia or has that disease as it used to be classified, right? <laughs> um, you know, unless they're documenting their own play and they're writing their own accounts and they're really trying to think about their personal experience in a broader social way, well, guess what? When they die, all of that history and that sense of remembrance is gone. So I think that's something that's really important for nostalgia is that it tends to not publish it's more about the love of a, a lost something or a feeling or emotion. But unless you're actually doing the earnest work of documentation of your own self, 
Well, that work's not going to live beyond you. I think whereas with any historical research, part of doing that is doing the documentary side of it, you know, to document the artifacts you're using, to write about them, to think about them, to interpret them. And I don't see nostalgia sharing that same toolkit. It's not to say that it can't, of course, but at the moment, we don't see it having that sort of investment in trying to, I guess, document its own sense of nostalgia. Wow. <laughs> no, that's... God, that's a great argument. It's it's interesting that you know, kind of the 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 modern remembrances of these older things get in the way of any kind of of basic interpretation of original intent or something. Um, you know, so so we've got that going on. But with with uh, with nostalgia, I'm I'm going to ask you, and this is something you know, with we'll likely be having other guests on the program, and we're going to ask them you know a couple of questions too. And I wanted to to start uh, with you. Um, and, uh, you know, the first question is, uh, what's, what's your all-time favorite arcade game? And then the follow-up, of course, is, uh, what are you playing now? It's a game after I said it was Robotron 2048. I just love the fact that you've got, you used to go utterly apeshit playing that game because you had two controllers, right? Two joysticks, one for moving, one for firing. I just loved how, how chaotic the gameplay was. And I, I loved feeling utterly overwhelmed how much stuff is on the screen. You know, that always excited me with that. But one of the things is I as I find with this new research, and this started to happen in game after because I was so privileged. I could go to museums and I could go into the storage facility. That's something that is, you know, the public will not see. And I found that I was interested in playing less and looking more. And that really changed my whole relationship to games. And because technically with this next book or the current book that I'm really behind on is that I'm looking at inert objects. So I'm looking at I'm looking at particle board. I'm looking at plastic plexiglass more attraction panels. I'm looking at controllers, control panels. I'm not playing games. I'm looking at games. And I think that's really shifted a lot of my approach to how I think of my own personal relationship to these things. For example, when I look at uh, Le Mans, which is a really wonderful race game that Atari put out, I think it's 1976. And I love it not for the gameplay, which is great for that era. I love it for the beautiful use of red and orange on the cabinet artwork. I love the cardboard hand-illustrated bezel that you see surrounding the frame. So I think what's happened, Andrew, is I'm taking a more formalist art historian, art historian approach, but I'm applying it to a popular medium of video games. So for me, I'm, I'm thinking of myself looking like a design historian, looking at Wedgwood flatware and trying to understand, you know, the affordances, say, that a plate provides, or looking at the intricate and complex design associated with that. I'm, I'm taking that approach to how we look at these ordinary things, these objects, and applying it to games and to a medium that hasn't really had that critical lens applied to it. So I'm not really playing coin-op games. I find myself playing less and looking more, because I want somebody to open them up. And what I find happening so much is when I'm at the strong... My eyes are on the side of the game, it's not the screen. I'm on the sides looking at the artwork. I'm going across the attraction panel. If there is a bezel, I'm taking pictures of the bezel. I'm trying to understand why did Atari use that color palette? What design, what design choices were made for this particular style of a cabinet? Um, so I'm asking a lot of formalist questions and I'm doing that not to disdain a formal analysis, but I want to really reveal a process. I think that's what's really missing in the history of games. If we're going to understand the point-out machine as part of a complex process of many different design practices and represented by different design fields, 
I want to really tease that process out. Because how did these people, when tasked with designing a cabinet for a game, how did they go about doing it? What was their inspiration? How did they conceptualize? What was their process of putting together these kind of concept sketches? And then what was the next phase? I really want to get that entire process out. At what point did the graphics department come in? Did the graphic design people actually play the game? What I was told was that from a graphic design point of view, they were interested in the measurements of the, um, the cabinet side panels because that was their tapestry, right? That's their blank slate that they have to work on in order to kind of uh, do the artwork that they want to do. So I guess my question has really shifted, or my interest has shifted away from the screen to everything around it. They're trying to really uh, materialize that process that's been very obscure in the history of games. Now, but I will try to answer your question. Um, I, I am a, a, I can't say lifelong, because it's only been since 94, but uh, EA Sports FIFA, that's my, that's my game. I mean, that's my game. <laughs> I would say daily on a regular basis. Um, I play a lot of Fallout as well. If there's any contemporary game that's really captured my imagination, I love the post-apocalyptic narrative of Fallout. And I just love the, the exploration, you know, the kind of exploratory side of that game as well. And I get caught up in the narrative as well. I mean, the narrative is very powerful in Fallout. So I play a lot of Fallout and um, FIFA 17 right now. So every year it is, that's a new FIFA I'm playing. And I have to say that I'm, I'm excited with Xbox Live, where I can download a lot of older 360 games, but a lot of kind of so-called classic coin-op games, you can, like Rally X, I downloaded that the other day, for instance. And Atari has a lot of these great uh, flashback patches. So I can play Atari's Asteroids on my, I think, 63-inch plasma screen. So that's quite an experience because when I do that, in order to make that image perhaps uh, render very well, you have all you have to truncate the actual screen. If you, you expand it across the width of a contemporary plasma screen, the resolution is going to be horrible. They do so by including the cabinet artwork. And I think that's intriguing that in all these emulators for pulling up games, they haven't abandoned the actual form. That form of the cabinet artwork kind of travels with these different forms of emulation. And that's really intriguing to me to think about, you know, we still have cabinets present, but they're not present in the same three-dimensional physical way, but they're present in a more 2D, flat, artistic way of rendering what used to be on the sides or above the screen. And that's fascinating to me. So I guess Robotron would be for the, you know, back-in-the-day type experience. Um, I have to say one of the coin-op games that fascinates me the most is Pong. I know that sounds odd to say, but I think Pong is a wonderful example of modernist design. I'll leave that answer right there in intrigue and mystery. <laughs> well, Rayford, I wanted to thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, this is terrific. And yeah, when the, when your new book comes out, we'd definitely like to have you back on the show to, to talk more about the design history of Atari in the early days. So um, yeah, thanks again. I'd, wonderful. I'd love to be back. And sorry, sorry for cutting off. I'd love to be back. Fantastic. And I think that one, one final thought on this is that one of the things that captivated me the most, Andrew, when I was talking to Mike Correo um, about his work, he designed the Tempest cabinets I mentioned earlier, and he taught me how to look at a cabinet from his perspective. And that really opened up this artifact to me. You know, I've always asked myself, why does Tempest look the way it does? Who made that decision to have this really interesting triangular type of cabinet. So I, I was asking Mike a lot about, where did your form come from? He said, well, the game is, there's a lot of ge ge uh, geometrical shapes in the game. So I tried to capture that in my cabinet. Oh, so you have a lot of triangles that move around that screen. Hence, you have a cabinet that's expressive of its game content. I won't say more than that, 
But one of the things that really fascinated me was that black stripe that goes across cal uh, the cabinet of tempest. You know, why is it there? What is its function? I actually have an answer for that, but I don't want to share it yet since you're inviting me back. Once the book's done, I will then share that answer with you. <laughs> what that answer does tell me is that there are other histories of design that these Atari industrial designers were looking from. They were interested in car design. They were interested in consumer electronics, furniture design, architecture. And what they always told me, Andrew, you'll find this fascinating. When tasked with designing a new cabinet, they never looked at other cabinets. They looked at those other forms with other fields of design. So Mike would say to me, you know, I was a big car guy. And he tried to bring certain elements of car design into a lot of the cabinets that he would design. And I think that's absolutely intriguing. And I think it really bodes well for why Atari's games, if you compare them to other coin ops, why they really stand out design-wise in terms of their cabinet artwork, but also their form and style. I'll stop there. Okay, thanks again. And and yeah, every every episode needs a cliffhanger. So uh, stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned, everybody. Good luck with the series, and thank you very much for um, having me on today. Sure. Thanks again. Well, I hope you all enjoyed the episode. Give you an update on our raid group's progress. As I promised earlier, we um, seem to have found a secret 8 bit level. Until next time, this is Andrew Reinhardt for 8 bit test pit. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.